Well, hello, folks. I don't know if you're going to remember me or not, <laughs> but it's Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. After a very long and unplanned hiatus, I am back at the mic and very excited to bring you another batch of interviews with some of today's most interesting creative types. I'll have an after show to kind of explain myself because I feel like uh, I probably owe you folks some kind of explanation. But right now, I want to just kind of get to it because uh, this is episode 130. On this episode of Craft Sanity, I'm going to bring you an interview that I just recorded earlier this week with Chris McLaughlin, and she is the author of A Garden to Die For, and she's a spinner. So for those of you who like the fiber arts, Chris also knows a little bit about that. But her real area of expertise is gardening, and she... It lives out in Northern California, where she is a garden writer and uh, an author. And she's been gardening and teaching for about 35 years, actually more than that. And she is the home agriculture editor for From Scratch Magazine and the homesteading guide at about.com. She writes for some other outlets as well. She has um, several books out as well. Uh, this uh, A Garden to Die For is actually her sixth book. Her most recent book before that was Vertical Vegetable Gardening. So she's done quite a bit of writing on the topic of gardening. And the reason why I wanted to bring this interview to you folks is because I know I've gotten into doing a lot of, of gardening and crafting with things from outside. You know, I try to bring the outdoors in and I think this would be really fun for those of you who are interested in trying natural dyeing. Uh, this has so many applications. I mean, you can dye fabric to make clothing and quilts and just about anything else you want to sew. Uh, you also can dye fibers for spinning and knitting and weaving. And it's just really pretty cool when you're able to find a second purpose for these things in the garden. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Chris. And uh, without further ado, for Pete's sake, it's, it's taken me so long. Let's just get to this. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Chris, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. You're going to kind of help me get this thing back going again. I took a little hiatus from this podcast, and now I'm going to be relaunching here with an interview with you about your new book, A Garden to Die For, which I understand this just came out. Is It's fairly new. It is. It came out a few weeks ago. I'm not sure the exact date because we kind of, you know, some stores get them earlier than others. But yeah, a few weeks ago it came out. And I'm really excited about it because the publishing house did a gorgeous job. I mean, they really did. So I was so pleased and happy to see this guy come out. The cover itself is very eye-catching. So anyone who likes dying or wants to try it for the first time, this is going to really catch, uh, stop people in their tracks, I think. Yeah, it is really pretty. And it's so funny. People have asked me, did you take that picture? And I'm like, no, I wish I did. <laughs> uh, this wonderful woman took a, a dying class with um, like a famous dyer. And she was on the Isle of Man. I mean, it's like this gorgeous, like, you wow. know, thing. And I just, I was so impressed. And she so kindly said I could use it. And I was over the moon with that because I just loved it so much. It did such a nice job. So I have several dying books on my shelf. And I know that uh, some of them are, I guess, a little more scientific. Where, yes, you know, you definitely. feel like you kind of, there's kind of an intimidation factor a little bit when you open the book and you're like, wow, um, 
I don't really want to get this technical <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, well, yeah, and, for and that, that could come out later. You know, right. you get and technical think, later. Yeah, well, I think for, for some people, they just want to try it and see if they like it and see if they, you know, if it's something they're going to get into. And from there, I get, you know, I might get more scientific as I go on if I'm trying to replicate something. But we know dying with things found in nature, it's hard to get exactly the same and almost impossible, actually, <laughs> to get the exact right, same right. outcome. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. When I when I decided to pedal around this book, I, I had it in my mind for a couple of years, and I had to find a home for this book. Um, you know, a publishing house that wanted to work with it with me. And it was interesting because as a hand spinner, I'm aware of all the dye books you're talking about, and they are fabulous. I mean, they really are. They're very in-depth. They're very scientific. Um, and I think that they're really great books. Uh, the problem is you're... Uh, what I was finding was those are very popular in the uh, fiber artist world, in the crafting world. A lot of people knew about them. But what I found as a garden writer, uh, which is predominantly what I am, um, I found that my colleagues and the people that were just gardening around me, they were not utilizing their plants in this way. And it was really surprising because I thought, well, that's interesting. These diehard gardeners, you know, and, and we're always looking for another reason to grow things. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. oh, we need a new garden, you know. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So what I really was trying to do is not only give people some simple steps, I think that I try to walk people through them so that, I mean, I don't want to leave them in the wind. I definitely don't do that. But everything is not precise, like you said. Um, but I do kind of do sort of step by step in there. And I felt like I wanted to bridge that gap, being someone who has a voice in the gardening world. I thought I'd love to bridge that gap between these fiber artists, knowing all about this already, and the gardeners who are actually growing the plants and mm -hmm. actually in love with those plants. And so that's kind of why I did it. I just wanted things that were very simple. Um, and then the more I did it in my head and thought about the book, it also evolved into, even though the cover is like this beautiful, you know, thing with wool, I also wanted to add things that were just for families. I just wanted, you know, you don't have to be, some people might look at it and think, well, I'm not a hand spinner. You know, I don't right. work with wool. But you can do scarves and you can do place looks with the kids and you can do Play-Doh and paints. And there's so many other things. So that's kind of why I wanted to do it. I just wanted everybody to see what else these great plants could do. And, um, you know, you know, see how everyone took to it. So hopefully everyone's enjoying it. Oh, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. I heard about it online somewhere. A little snippet, and then I I went looking for more information and contacted your publisher, and oh, um, yeah, it's really I think it's nice because it's not intimidating at all. It's really nice how you basically feel like uh, you know you read this and you feel like you're kind of pulling up a chair to a table right. and you're talking directly to your reader with the right. kind of come on, you can do this kind of you know um, that's kind of the message you get. Yes, and that was it's perfect because that what you know, gosh. Stateland's Press was so awesome for that because they really let me keep my voice. I've loved my other publishing houses. I've always had actually a very good experience with publishing houses. But with these guys, they're a little smaller, so they're more intimate. So they really get what you're saying and they get, you know, they ask you, like, how would you want this to really look? And they get into it. And so it was really nice because they left my voice. And mm. I was able to talk to people like I do. Um, and, and that either made me more comfortable and I think my readers will recognize my voice in there. And so it was so enjoyable. It was being single handed 
most enjoyable book that I've ever written. I mean, I just had a ball with it. When did you emerge as a gardener? I, and I read a little bit in your book, but uh, we can't assume that everybody has read your book yet. We don't want to steal what? the thunder. <laughs> we don't want to assume that. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I always laugh because I, I'm a I'm sort of this uh, this farmer, like internally, um, that was born into an IBM family. I mean, it's really true. Like, you know, that was back in the day, you know, just beginning with computers and stuff. And my dad was actually working for IBM. And, um, you know, and my mom had uh, beautiful yards for sure, you know, uh, but wasn't necessarily a gardener per se at, you know, at the time. Now she was much more of a gardener. Uh, but when I was quite young, I was like 10 years old. And it was really funny because I found these teeny weeny seedlings, which of course were volunteers. I had no way of knowing that's what they were called then. And I collected them up. And I put them in Dixie cups and put some bag soil in there. And I put it in my brother's little red wagon. And I literally went up and down the street and <laughs> sold them to the neighbors. I swear. I'm like, look at me, 10 cents. You know? And it is hysterical because it's like, I mean, my parents are entrepreneurs from hell. Okay. <laughs> These guys build this. I mean, if they wake up and think of a business, they build it. It's like crazy. So I have that spirit, you know, and, and there I was. And, you know, it's so funny because I, I just loved plants from that moment on. And then as a 16-year-old, I worked in a florist and um, loved it, learned so much about, you know, even houseplants. And then they had a beautiful houseplant section in terrariums back then. Terrariums were huge, you know, and flowers and things like that. Got very into that. Of course, you know, I went on with my life. But as a young married person, got very into gardening. You know, once again, it kind of all came back, my love for plants and started putting in all different kinds of gardens that I just never stopped. I mean, everything was about the plants and, of course, animals, you know, went right along with that. And um, then I just got older and started, you know, um, writing about them and, you know, trying to get other people to enjoy what I was enjoying so much about them. And so, you know, it's kind of just gone on from there. And with the, with the hand spinning, I used to raise rabbits and several of them were English Angoras. And that's, of course, where oh, we nice. get our Angora fiber. So, right. um, yeah, so I always had wanted to learn to spin with them, but I was so busy showing uh, at the rabbit shows that I just never did it. So then uh, a few years ago. Were you collecting ago, the fiber all along or just discarding it? No, I wasn't. Oh, my. <laughs> a blasphemy. I don't even <laughs> want to think about it. But because I, I didn't know what to do with it, and I wanted someone to show me so bad. Right. But, I was raising small children and I had right, this rabbitry and it was crazy, your, you know? Your, your attic with Angora. <laughs> yeah, oh, and, yeah. And and now I'm like, I'm crazy. Like now I have French Angoras and I have, um, you know, an Angora goat, which of course their fiber is called mohair. That's, right. even though it's an Angora goat, it's mohair. So the whole spinning thing came into my life several years ago. I started doing natural dyes with those. But about 20 years ago, I, the way I found the natural dyes is about 20 years ago, I had a magazine. I'd read about Easter egg dyeing with natural plant dyes. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I tried it because I thought, well, this is really fascinating. And I just couldn't believe it. It was so great. So I started playing with flowers, but not so much doing, you know, major dyeing, but just all different types of things I could do with them, including pounding them um, for their color and yeah, things like really that. that's really fun, too. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's very cool. Um, and doing the pressed flowers and making pictures out of the pressed flowers. And so, and then, like I said, so several years ago, I was hand spinning and doing the dyeing. And I would tell people, they'd be like, oh, what'd you dye with? And I would tell them. And, and they would think, really? And I'm thinking, you're a gardener. You probably know this. But they didn't. Mm -hmm. And I thought, gardeners need to know, you know. <laughs> 
and I'm on this pedestal. You need to know. Yeah, it's kind of like when you were raising the rabbits and didn't know how to spin. You found out, and that expanded your world. I mean, for all these gardeners now, your book it is did. expanding their world because they're not discarding all that color. <laughs> you know, if you're an experimenter at all, if you're curious, not even an experimenter. I mean, maybe you don't consider yourself that. But anybody who's curious, it's pretty funny when I um, I talk about the great black bean experiment in the book where I was using black beans, and black beans is a fugitive dye, which means it will not stick. You can dye something that color, but when you wash it, probably fade to gray or something to that effect. But you could use it for, say, maybe paints or, you know, um, Easter egg dyes or something that you didn't need it to be permanent. But I wanted to see if I could get blue because blue is the hardest thing to get in, in nature, you know, the natural dyes. Mm-hmm. And there's several other plants that do that, but I wanted to try the beans. So I, I do this, and I dyed a piece of cotton in it, and it came out lavender. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm supposed to have blue. I mean, I couldn't figure out where I went wrong. I mean, it's water and beans, okay? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, come on now, we can do this. And it was really funny. I had to think about that for a minute, and then I thought, wait a minute. I wonder if my water the pH of the water is more acidic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I literally like, and this way, you know, I try to get some measurements in there because, you know, you've got to get some to help people. Right. But I, at that point, I literally opened up the cupboard and I thought, let's make this more alkaline. And I grabbed some baking soda and I sprinkled it in there and poof, it turned blue, like immediately. <laughs> and it was so much fun. And my mouth's open and I'm jumping up and down. <laughs> <laughs> This is way fun. I mean, you got to show kids this. I mean, you know, so, I mean, honestly, it's, it's a never-ending experiment. And when you harvest plants, um, the shades that you get from them or the depth of the color, it can come from, you know, uh, different parts of the you know, season. If right. you harvested oak leaves and they were brand spanking new, it's going to come out a little different than if they're at the end of the summer and you got some really hard, toughened oak leaves. So it, the experiments never end. They're just, you can't stop experimenting. There's so much to try. So, so what is your favorite thing to dye at this point? I mean, is it fiber? To be honest, my favorite thing to tell people to dye is a silk scarf, 100% silk scarf. It's just like a plain, like white, right. you know, um, eggshell maybe, whatever. Um, but because it's, it's silk absolutely grabs natural color really well, really fast. So it's very gratifying. And then, of course, once it dries, you can wear it. It's a fashion scarf. You know, right. you, you don't wear have to do this. anything else to it. You don't have to exactly. make it into something else. Correct. You don't have to knit it or spin right. it or do anything. You're wearing it. You know? So I like that because I think it's really gratifying to people. The wool and the mohair and the angora rabbit, those all take really well. Cotton is the hardest. Mm-hmm. And that's frustrating for people sometimes to think about because back in the day of tie-dye, um, you know, that's what you use with your cotton teas. That was, you know, right. uh, but you're using a different type of dye. You know, that's a synthetic dye. So um, when you're using the natural dyes, it's harder to get them to stick. It's not impossible by any stretch. It's just that you just got to find things that want to stay longer, say like walnuts or onion skins. Um, those really have a lot of stick to itiveness, you know, or even an indigo dye, which is done with, usually done with a vat. So it's a little bit different. But the point just being is something stick really well to cotton, but many things you're going to want to stick uh, a little more with the wool or the silks or something. It just, you know, you just got to try it and, you know, kind of figure that out. So, so how is this, how is your interest in dyeing uh, 
how has that changed the way you garden or what you're gardening? Have you started to plant things specifically for the color that they produce? Oh, definitely. And, you know, my favorite thing to do when I tell people, because lots of people don't have, like, a ton of space. I mean, really, it seems like the majority of people, they have, like, a limited garden space. And that could be where they live or it could also just be where their sun is hitting or whatever, you know. So, you know, the really great thing is to have things pull double duty. You know, if you're growing a cutting garden, you could also grow, you know, you could choose the cutting garden flowers that can actually be used as dyes, too. So you kind of got the double thing going, you know. So um, I just try to think in terms of that, like, you know, what else can this do for me? And that was kind of where I was going with the dye plants to begin with. People are growing food, and I split it up in the book that way. I mean, there's a cottage gardens, and then there's food gardens, and then there's just your landscape. Mm-hmm. You don't have to plant a garden ever. You, maybe you've never even planted a garden in your life. If you walk outside, uh, trust me, the land developer has put in something out there. That is going to bring you some color. You can walk right outside and grab something and put on your stove and do it. So, um, so that's why I think it's just so wide open. I mean, it's just different plants in general. Different parts of the plants will work. You know, some don't, some do. So some, the bark is awesome. Some of the roots, like in the case of matter root or dandelion root, um, a lot of times it's the leaves. Many times it's the leaves. And sometimes it's the flowers. So it's, a, it's all just, you know... Um, I just think it's wide open for everybody, you know, um, maybe someone who's homeschooling their kids and wants to do it for a science thing or something. And, oh, you know, yeah. you don't have to be a major gardener to do it. I just wrote it from the heart of a gardener that, you know, I, we're the ones who love the plants. So right. I, you know, I right. mean, it just kind of came from that direction. So. Well, and it just gets, you get so much more mileage out of your garden too. Just, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm curious about like when you cut flowers and you bring them in and you, you know, you have them in a vase and they live for a little bit. I'm imagining they lose their potency a little bit, but can you then take those almost nearly yeah. dead flowers and throw them into your well, dye yeah, pot? You know, do you do that? Um, yes, you definitely can. Um, I would think that because I haven't tried every flower on the planet, so I don't want to, you know, I'm sure some of them definitely do lose their vibrancy, and some plants really work better when they are fresh. But I'll tell you, things like marigolds, I mean, who cannot get marigolds? Everybody can get marigolds. I don't right. care what, you can be in prison and get marigolds. I mean, you can get marigolds, you know? <laughs> and, you know, really, I mean, you can just get them. Go to Depot. I shouldn't say that, huh? Go to your independent garden center. But I'm just saying, you know, even if you don't grow them, just go get them and right. lop those heads off. And what I do so that I have them in the wintertime, I pull a bunch of those heads off, I lay them out, let them dry, and I collect them in jars. You know, I mean, so those are dried flower petals. They totally work. They look all weird and shriveled up. No, they completely work. In the case of daylilies, you want them uh, shriveled up and dried first. They okay. work better after they're, they're sort of deceased as a flower, you know. So you don't have to freeze the marigold. I haven't frozen them, but people do, and people freeze all kinds of other things. And you, you found that you don't have to. You can just dry them. And... No, I just dry them. I just let them dry. Well, I like that because, I mean, the thing is, do you really want to give up all the real estate in your freezer? Right, long? right. I mean, because the other people in the family sometimes become less understanding when they're looking for, you know, something that legitimately goes in the freezer and all kinds of yeah, dead flowers yeah. fall out. <laughs> yeah, well, there. yeah, I do have a story about that one. I was teaching a wildlife. Uh, I was a 4-H leader for many years. And I taught a wildlife class, and one day my daughter opened the freezer to get bagels and pulled out the bagel bag and, you know, slid it out onto the counter, and it was the dead flying squirrel. So <laughs> that's a very good example of they weren't appreciative of that. I was like, I have to show the wildlife kids. She's like, Mom, it's a dead flying squirrel. <laughs> 
I know, but I want to show the kids. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you don't want to surprise people. But, you know, it's really fun, too, honestly. It's sort of like if, if anyone out there, you want to get a sewer, if you sew, um, and you collect all this fabric, you know, and so many of us, just to get away with sort of decorating with it, you know, we're lining them up all folded neatly in all these great rainbow colors. Right. And they're just gorgeous. You know, and you walk into the house and you see this, it looks like a decoration. And you could do that with the dried flowers. You know, I have really clear jars that are really cute. And then all the dried petals are, you know, are in there. And people are curious, like, oh, what is that? You know, and, but it's cool. It's like this really cool little apothecary situation oh, you know yeah. i have a situation like that because i um i bought a new cabinet my sisters got me into collecting pyrex you know so i have this, this oh, pyrex, yeah. and, which is really pretty and i like to let my bread dough rise and my favorite pink oh bowl. nice yeah but anyway so i cleared out this other cabinet that i actually might be i might sell it or find a new home for it i don't know but i thought hmm i had all these dried flowers that i couldn't quite part with yes so I put absolutely. them I laid them out in this cabinet and they actually look beautiful <laughs> at least I, I think know so. isn't that funny and it can be to an extreme though when you find a second use for everything you have um <laughs> well no that's I agree with that that does get a little crazy the only good thing is like I find like I'll think I have a ton of marigold heads like I'm thinking oh my gosh I'm gonna fill up this jar but by the time they dry yeah they'll fill up like a third of the jar right? like oh you know so you know I mean they, they at least uh you know, are accommodating that way. My fabric, not so much. My fabric right. is so Right, yeah, that doesn't, yeah. you can let it dry all you want. It's not going to shrink yep. it out. <laughs> it all kind of still sits there, so I try to make it look pretty, so, yeah. you know, I don't know. But So what kind of feedback are you getting? I know it's only been out for a few weeks, but... I'm getting really good feedback. Um, I mean, everybody really likes it. They find it, like, like you said, very curious, like, you're like, wow, I, you know, I never really thought of that, you know? And one thing that... I think it's really fun too, like with the scarves, you know, going back to the fashion scarves, like don't, don't picture the wool scarves, but the fashion ones is that when you do those, it's so much fun. Like I've actually had people stop me and say, I mean, like I'll be at the counter somewhere and they'll, you know, be like, oh my gosh, it's a beautiful scarf. I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, and like, oh, where'd you get it? Like, oh, I made it, you know, with, you know, avocado skins and, you know, uh, rose petals and onion skins. And I'm trying to think what else was on that thing, but, you know, but, all kinds of things like that, and they're just like blown away because they actually, they actually look like the nice expensive fashion scarves that you oh, buy. Yeah. But it's yeah. really fun. It's all natural stuff, you know. That, you know, before it hit the compost bin or maybe the garbage, depending on you know what it was headed for, right. um, you know that that you got to make this beautiful thing out of it as it was. All the other things were kind of dead and going away. And so, I don't know. I just think, uh, you know, I just think it's really fun to create that way. And, um, and also I think it shows people that that might happen with other things in life. You know what I'm saying? Like not mm -hmm. that you would die with everything else, but I'm just saying, you, you know, look at things a different way because there might be another use, right? you know, in some creative repurposing or something like that. Just, you know, just another way to see things and you know, what it might become. And I think that's, my kids watched me dyed, uh, some wool with avocado. I make a, oh, guac, yeah. a guac dip and then I always have these avocado, um, the pits and those aren't really great to put into your, so I don't, I don't throw those into the compost bin. Um, cause they, right. Have, I don't either. Yeah. Those yeah. are kind of toxic. Yeah. So I, um, you know, and it takes three avocados. So it, you know, it's not really enough. I would have, if I was going to really try to dye and get great color, I would use more. So now I'm going to be freezing yes. these. I think <laughs> my yes, husband's like really excited absolutely. to hear about my plans. No, absolutely. And you know, some things 
you know, like you suggested about the freezer, some things I would do that with. You know, I tell people too, like with uh, tea bags, I could say, you know, gosh, who doesn't remember dying with tea bags? Like, you know, when people are back dying muslin with the tea bags and they look old fashioned and, you know, stained. And, you know, but like my tea bags, obviously, are little and I don't drink enough. Well, <laughs> I probably do. I do. You all probably don't. You know, drink <laughs> enough tea to, um, you know, to like create a dye bath maybe that day or whatever, right, depending on how right. much you're dying. So those are really great things to stick in a Ziploc in the freezer because they will get kind of weird and moldy and whatever. You might want to actually freeze that and it'll all be nice and fresh when you go to, you know, just keep adding to the bag. What's nice about it too is that when you do this with children, you know, you're not sure exactly what's going to happen next. And to get kids to kind of be okay with that concept of not knowing what's going to happen next exactly. Right. Because uh, some people kind of panic a little bit when they get to crossroads in their life and they're not really sure what's going to happen next. And right. uh, I that's think through true. a lot of the experiments my children are witnessing, that's not something that scares them. It's kind of an exciting thing for them. They're like, okay, well, let's see what happens next. But and to see the beauty fun. sometimes. You yeah, know? yeah. And that's another thing. I had a couple of people while I was, you know, talking with people, researching, doing things like that. They're very into, of course, dyeing the fiber right. and, you know, to knit sweaters and such. And so they were really like, don't talk about fugitive dyes. Don't talk about fugitive dyes. And I'm thinking, no, there's a purpose for fugitive dyes. That's just not, you don't want it to be an heirloom sweater. That won't work. <laughs> You're not going to keep that color. Right, right, right. But, you know, that said, there are some dyes that will fade very slowly over time. And to be fair, there's synthetic dyes that will do that too. Right. Um, and so uh, someone suggested, and it was funny because I know it sounds kind of like mushy or whatever, like, I, I don't know. A trite or something, but but it's really true. You know, they they were uh, kind of comparing it to the changes in the garden, and how you get this vibrant thing in the summertime and everything's all awesome, and the summer starts to go away and things start to die back. But then you get the beautiful leaves on the trees, and then you get, I mean, everything's evolving. And so maybe you had this vibrant pokeberry thing that you dyed, and then it slowly, slowly fades, and then, then it kind of went down to a a cranberry, light cranberry color, and then it kind of went down to a light, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Lighter than right. that, pinkish. I mean, and, and there's just beauty in every part of that. So, you know, I mean, there's also an appreciation for just because I bought this one thing, this color, that it has to be that way forever. Like, you know, we right. think that way because we, when we buy things, they, you know, that's kind of where our thought is at. But I uh, did a, and I did this very quickly, and I didn't even do a nice mordant with it, which is like um, anything such as alum and cream of tartar together kind of like helps bind color. I, I think the cream of tartar is more of a, a color uh, vibrancy thing. But in any case, when you um, put in, you know, create a bath with your mordant um, with the alum or some other thing you're using, that helps that color adhere. Mm -hmm. And I only did that maybe for a little bit with this cotton tea. I just want to check it out with the marigolds. So I did that. I did do a little bit of that, but I wasn't trying that hard. Um, and that was by design. I just want to see very gently how it all come out. So I dyed it. I tie-dyed it with rubber bands and things like that, and I threw it in a marigold dye bath. And I probably wore that shirt, and I took no special care of it. I did not hand wash it and lay it out to dry or something to help save the color. I threw it in the washing machine and in the dryer. And I probably wore that probably 15 times. Before it finally came to the point where like, oh, okay, I don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> now it's just kind of faded and weird, you know. Right. Um, but I thought, well, okay, so, you know, you're not going to wear a shirt 15 days in a row. 
So, I mean, when you think about it, how long did you get that? You know, I don't know. I'm just saying there's different ways I think about these things and, you know, what you're really after. Some are very fugitive. Some really do wash out right away. But like I said, if you put it in Play-Doh or do Easter eggs or do little paintings with it, um, that's not going to matter at all. You know, the color is going to be there when you need it. So, you know, I like to let my plants go to seed so I can collect the seeds. And it's really fun to take pictures of that progression of right now, everything's very vibrant and colorful. But then as things do die back, that's still, there's a lot of beauty in that as well. There and, really is. Yeah. There really I is. Mean, and how they change. I mean, one of the greatest ones that I like to watch is Nigella Damascena, you know, uh, which is Love in a Mist. Okay. You know, Nigella? And, and once that goes to seed, it, you've got this awesome pod behind it, and then they call it devil in a bush. Oh, because cool. it has horns and everything. But they're very cool seed pods, you know? And if you never let it get there, you were never going to see that. Right. And they shake and they make a sound and stuff. And so um, so it's really true. Things do change. And, and even if, um, I don't know, if, you're, if your T-shirt that faded out, well, it doesn't look good anymore. Well, now you have an opportunity to dye that little puppy once again. I mean, well, you know, exactly. go do something different with it now. Exactly. So, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's just, I just find it so much fun. I feel like such a great creator at the time. Like, wow, look what we're making. And so um, to know that the plants are bringing all that and, and they're surprising. Um, I've only worked with a couple of different lichens. So I want to do more with that. But one I work with is a very vibrant, almost neon yellow. Yeah, I saw that um, in your book. You have that one. Gorgeous, in yeah. Yes. And then the other one turns a beautiful purple and lavender. Yeah, the color is kind of surprising. What it's you get very, out of it. it's yeah. very crazy. And, you know, eucalyptus leaves are some of my favorite. I know people can't get a hold of that, but, I mean, not, you know, not a lot of people can maybe. But if you can, uh, oh, even, you know what? Oh, I was just thinking, I say that. But, you know, if you go into a craft store or something and they sell the little silver dollar eucalyptuses, you could take those, um, you know, assuming they weren't cured or something with something. But um, I was just thinking they could get them. But they get bring some great colors, just some brick and, you know, rust and all that. They really, they're awesome. Now, that I do talk about in the book, some things are aromatic, like really aromatic. You know? <laughs> and so you want to have maybe a dye station outside. There's things like the marigolds. Um, the Coryopsis, I mean, you know, I mean, a golden rod, those things, they don't, they don't really make much of a smell. I mean, you don't really even, I don't know, you don't notice it. But things like eucalyptus, wow, like some people really love it. Some people go, oh, my gosh, it's overpowering. So, you know, that kind of stuff you might want to do outside. But it's fun to work with because it gives surprising colors. So, um, you know, I was always on the, the lookout. And now I want to get into the mushrooms. Because there is a lady named Alyssa Allen that's going around teaching the entire country how to die with all these different mushrooms that you oh, find in the wild. And they are gorgeous colors. What kind of colors is she getting out of mushrooms? Every color. I can't even imagine. Seriously? I mean, yeah, oh. it's like all over the... I try to think if there's blue, but I swear I thought there was, but I don't... I don't want to swear to that because... But I'm telling you, she has these wonderful photos online and... I see every color. I'm like going, are you joking me? I mean, I just, I can't believe the beauty she gets out of these guys. So, um, yeah, so that's exciting. And I haven't done mushrooms yet. I've been more with the garden plants. That's kind of been mostly my focus. But but now I'm excited to expand and, and do more with this. Do you ever just throw things in a pot? 
just things you don't really know exactly? Oh, yeah. Uh, we did it with, um, in December, when I was finishing up the book, my husband came home with gobs of mistletoe. Okay. He's like, I wonder if this will make color. Oh, throw it in the pot and find out. And sure enough, it did. Um, you know, it did work. And we did different little skeins and, you know, and then afterwards, what I, I love to play with iron uh, solution. So um, I took whatever I dyed, I'll take one of those. I always do like two of them so I can play with the other one or, mm-hmm. or three of them, you know, right. and do one of them and maybe an iron solution, which um, will change its color. Um, and then also doing it the opposite direction where I'll add washing soda or baking soda and it will make it even a different. So now you've got from this one plant, you have just, just from those three ideas, you have three different colors sitting there. It's like so much fun. And that's just three. I mean, I'm barely even tapping. I mean, you know, there's so many more things that you could try to, you know, change, you know, colors or tones or whatever. So it's interesting. Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun because, I mean, you do everything. Yeah. In your book, you tell people how to um, do naturally dyed Play-Doh, also watercolor dye paints, which are really fun. Yeah. Your scarves, do you order those online? I know, I think it's Dharma Trading. I think they have. Yeah, Dharma Trading Company has them. I mean, I think there's several places. Uh, Griffith's Dye Works, I'm trying to think. They might just have dyes. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there are several places, and Dharma's a great one. They have really good, really good prices, really great service, and they have, like, everything. So, And you can also, you know, for people who uh, maybe want to try something like, say, Matter Root, because they're thinking, oh, I want to try that, but... Yeah, what am I going to go, like, get matter and get the roots? You know, that might seem like, gosh, I want to work with that. You know, all these places, they will also sell the powdered form of that or, you know, like the root isn't powdered. It's actually little roots. But I'm just saying that you can actually buy natural color. I've told people before with the onion skins, I literally go to the grocery store and the produce people know me, but other people don't. And I take the little bags and I literally stand there and grab all of that loose, skin from the onions laying right. everywhere they're going to throw it out right and so exactly. i just like and they laugh because they know what i'm doing it for but other people walk by and they're thinking oh there's that crazy yeah, woman again lady, like, she eats onion skins <laughs> exactly <laughs> like like deer it's, it's the bulbous part that That's you want no you i want, want the skins you know so i look yeah. crazy but <laughs> but it's a great way like say you just wanted to do that this afternoon like you wanted to Try onion skins. Right. You um, need to have You enough. can do it immediately. Yeah. Right. Just go down there and grab them all. And... Well, I, w- I wanted to ask you about dandelions. Do you guys have a lot of dandelions out in California? We do. <laughs> You've mentioned dying with dandelion root, but do you di- do you die with the, the, um, the dandelion you know, flowers? You know, I... I've never dyed with the flowers. I don't think that gives you a dye. Okay. Um, mostly, um, it's been the roots like that I've even heard other people talking about. I've never heard, it doesn't mean it can't be tried, but I've never heard anyone else say that they have had success with the flowers. Isn't it unfortunate? So, because they're all over. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I they're know. free. I know. Be, it's like, hello, grab that their... stuff. Well, it's like goldenrod. A lot of goldenrod grows very wild. And, uh, you know, I want to remind people, too, that if... Uh, if it's an invasive species, that might be fine to gather, whatever. But when you're talking about regular wild plants, you only want to take, you know, less than a third of those plants. Right. And, of course, if you see one plant and it's only one, leave that alone. Right, um, right. You really want to find a whole hosted area and, and only take less than a third from each plant because then you know it can recover from that. You're not doing anything destructive and even with the lichens off the trees and stuff where i get my lichens is when somebody prunes those trees or a branch falls off in the forest 
Um, and a lot of people prune, like we live in an oak forest. We have like so many oaks out here. So they prune up their trees and they're just going to go through that thing in the, in the wood chipper, you know? Right. So, you so I take the lichen off of the branches that are downed, you know, right. and, that are going to be destroyed or, or burned. We burn a lot here. I know that's kind of blasphemous to say right now. We don't want to burn in California right now, people, but, but I mean, out in the country, Right. Uh, you know, when it is a burn season and a burn time, then we, then we do burn our branches. Right, and stuff. so if that's so, going to be destroyed anyway, that's the perfect time exactly. to Exactly, it's going to be destroyed anyway. Thanks for yeah, dying. So, yeah, so everyone's really careful about that, but it works. Even when you're really, really careful, you can find, you know, different things. For people that just want to kind of get, if they want to hear this and they're like, okay, today I'm going to try something, what is something that's readily available that is the most, you know, maybe color fast that would be really satisfying for someone to try, you know, first well, time the off the blocks? Yeah, the onion skins are very color fast, so that's a good one to try. And most people, you know, like I said, can get them in one way or another. But um, then the marigolds, like I said, and they they stay for a long time. The color, um, like I said, with the shirts with the cotton, that was a different experiment. Right, because that's not going to um, take as well. Yes. Yeah, but the things I've used, you know, when I've used it on silk and I've used it on wool, it stayed really well. Um, I can't say I've put it in the sun. For years, I don't know that answer, but I right. do know that the marigolds are something everyone can get a hold of, and the color is really satisfying. For the onion skins, if someone you know is listening now and they're like, okay, I have my onion skins and I want to dye this silk scarf, what do they need to do to that silk scarf ahead of time? What do they need to soak it in before they um, get to commence the, the dyeing? I very slowly kind of bring the water um, to a very low simmer, but I add some uh, cream of tartar. I'm trying to think what the measurements are, though, offhand, and I, I'm not. I'm coming well, we can refer people to the. To yeah. The okay. That. Yeah. Yeah, and I use a little bit of cream of tartar, and then I uh, the main thing is the alum. The alum is really the binder, and I, I put the scarf in there and just very you know low low simmer for like an hour, and at the same time. I'll take um, usually like a one-to-one ratio as far as what I'm dying. So if I have one scarf, I mean, it's pretty light. I'll just get like this big handful of either the marigolds or the onion skins or whatever. Sometimes I'll get two big handfuls because I want it to really have deeper color or something. Right. And then I put that in a different pot, you know, on, in the water bath. Um, and I let that simmer for an hour as well. So if I do them both at the same time and the bath is ready, when the scarf is ready, or... You can actually just mort the scarf and just have it on hand for later. It mm-hmm. stays there, so you can do that. Um, and then I put the scarf in the, you know, in the water. I might tie it up a little bit with a rubber band to do stuff with it, you know, to make it more interesting. Right. Um, and then I put it in the water bath for about an hour on a very low simmer after that onion skin has done its thing. And a lot of times, too, if I want a deeper color, um, I will take the pot off the stove and just let it sit overnight like that just to extract as much as I possibly can. And then in the morning, I turn it back on to where it, lo- it slowly simmers again, and then I dye something with it. And okay. it just gives like a deeper hue or, you know, so um, I'm always playing with things that way to see. But the onion skin stays really well, and so does the marigold. I mean, it's all it's pretty rewarding. Uh, but those are like the easiest things. I mean, there's a lot of other easy things depending on what you have in your yard, you right. know, so, yeah. And those are the easy things for everybody to either go to the grocery store and get or go to the garden center and get um, right. where it's not going to be a real, um, you know, uh, they have to trek uphill both ways to find right, these right. materials. <laughs> um, Very but, true, yes. And when you're doing these, uh, the dye bath, do you strain out your, your onion skins or your marigolds ahead of time? You know, I do most of the time, but there's a lot of times, 
you know, sometimes I just leave it in there. If it's something I could really, once I rinse it under the water, it comes out. Right. You know, because sometimes it depends on what you're working with. If something's really tiny and wants to go into the crevices of something that you've tied up. Right. You know, um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like in a bundle because you're making this little scarf. So, um, but lots of times I'll leave it in there. But with the marigold leaves, I mean, that's harder to rinse off. So usually I will strain that out first and then stick it back on the stove. Um with the eucalyptus, I almost never do. I mean, they're big, giant. I don't, you know, I just pop it in there. So. Right, because those are going to yeah. be easy to clean up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing, too, about your book that I want people to know about is you also get into the echo printing, where you, you are actually um, taking your scarf and wrapping the materials right. up and it rolling that up. And that's really, I've done that. I tried that last summer for the first time. And that was really fun. So that's oh, a great thing fun. too. And then yeah. also the kind of added bonus in your book that's not in any other dyeing book that I own is the planning and planting a dye garden. So you give some really cool right. plans, which I think is really fun. So people can get, do a couple dyeing experiments and then kind of, you know, get excited about planning their own. Yeah. You know, I was really lucky because uh, I have a friend, Jenny Peterson of Peterson Garden Design, and she's in Texas, and she drew those up for me. I was so oh, they're thrilled. So, they're really pretty, too, the way yeah, she Yeah, they are. This. She did such a great job, and I was, like, so excited when she did that for me. I was like, bless you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I owe you my firstborn. You know? <laughs> so I don't know if there's anything that you want the folks at home to know that I didn't ask you. I don't know if there's any Gosh, any I think we covered, <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, well, you know, just if they want to come on and, and chat with me, I'm always on Facebook. You know, I, I'm checking that all the time. I have a Facebook page called A Garden to Die For. So if you want to go there and, and ask me questions or something, you certainly can. Um, uh, the book is available like Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and Powell's and, you know, pretty much everywhere that I can think of. And I also have them on my website. Um, they're a little bit more expensive. I don't get it for the price that all those guys get it for, but... If you want it signed, I can send a signed copy. So you can also get one on my site if you want. That's great. And that's a suburbanfarmer.com. It is. Yes. yes. Okay. And or homeag.com or yeah, all these different, yeah, fall right into it. But how much land do you have to garden on? I mean, do you have a lot of well, land? Well, I have or? five acres, but okay. we don't garden on five acres because we have so many deer that we oh. have to have fences that are at least six feet tall because oh, they goodness. jump up otherwise. Wow. Yeah. So it's really expensive to try to, um, and, and we're on the hill, you know, yeah, <laughs> yes. so, so to do five acres with more than six foot tall fencing and then, and then as the hill goes down, you know, they get at an angle. I mean, they, they can actually jump a six foot fence if it's on, you right. know, just a downhill slope. Yeah, so now you're back to trying to go right that. over it. So, yeah. yeah, so I do a bunch of smaller gardens that are surrounded by six foot fencing so that I can do it that way. And my horses and things you know go on the rest of it so <laughs> well and it sounds oh, yeah, like and, and i know in your book you said that you kind of grew up where you would drive past farms and open spaces <laughs> and kind of like dream about ha you know living there like, I why can't do. i live there you know and so now it sounds like you've realized that childhood dream i to have, have. Space. Uh, yep at 50 years old i am finally you know, there was a cute meme on Facebook, and I love it so much. I need to blow it into a poster. And it says something like, no, I wasn't born in a barn, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> you know? Oh, like, I love yes. it. So did you just move to the property recently, or have you had the space for a while? We've been here for, actually, it's really funny. We've been here for three years Okay. Um, out here, although we lived in the country before this. I mean, I have to say uh, my husband and I lived out in the country years ago, and then we kind of moved to the Bay Area. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area, 
And then we came back up here on five acres and actually we're about to move again to another property, but it has five acres as well. So, okay. um, and so you're still the same. We didn't get any bigger. So, so you're in, and remind me too, where, where, what part of California are you in right now? Oh, we're in the, uh, Northern California foothills. Okay. So, uh, we're in the Placerville area and we're about one hour from Lake Tahoe. Uh, Lake Tahoe's one direction, but then if we go the hour the other direction, we're in Sacramento. Oh, very so nice. So we're right in the foothills. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. And that's great gardening country, too. It I mean, is. It's in awesome. Michigan, we, we go through, we had a really, really rough winter. So that must be pretty cool to be able to, to garden pretty yeah. much all year round. Then. Yeah, we do. We um, I get some snow here, but um, not like, I mean... People laugh when I say that. It's like, you don't get snow. It's like, okay, well, yeah, comparatively speaking. But, <laughs> but we do get snow, you know, but uh, but it doesn't stay as cold, right. you know, for as long as time. It just doesn't. So right. even though we do see snow and things like that, it is very mild. Everything's mild. Um, I mean, we get really cold, but to us, 18 degrees, we're dying. Yeah. We're like, oh, my God, we're going to freeze over. I mean, we, yeah. we can't take it. We're like, what do you mean it's 18 degrees? I mean, we don't want to pass out here. Yeah. So, um, except for when you go to Tahoe, of course, it drops quite a bit lower. But where we're at in the foothills, it doesn't it doesn't usually go below that. So, right. um, and we don't get that for that long. So, have you written some other gardening? Buddy? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've written other gardening books, and the one before this was vertical vegetable gardening. So that was a fun one to write, and I still vertical vegetable garden all the time. So, well, that's really um, that's, that's a really something cool in my life too. all the time. Yeah. yeah. So, and that one so. is it was just called vertical vegetable gardening. Yeah, it's called okay. vertical vegetable gardening. Yeah. Yep. And how long ago did that one come out? I think about, uh, I want to say a year ago. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I get lost. <laughs> so I, for so now someone might be able to read that book and read your dying book and uh, do a vertical dying garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. A lot of it, though, I talk about the vegetables, so maybe uh, not so okay, much. Yeah. But, but gardening tips in, in general, you know, right, so good. Right, right. Yeah. Well, oh, I think it's wonderful. You made some wonderful contributions to um, just the the knowledge that's circulating about, you know, gardening and now dying as well. And this is fantastic. So um, oh, nice you. job. High five to you. Keep thank up the great you. work. A special thanks to Chris for sharing the story behind her book and giving us some tips on how we can get out there and start using those plants from the garden to dye our fabric and yarn. Hopefully this inspires a lot of you to go out and plant some things for the color that you can get in the dye pot. That There's nothing wrong with that. So I know I'd like to grow some indigo in my garden and I haven't gotten my hands on any seeds yet, but I plan to order some of those soon. So if you have a comment that you'd like to leave on craftsanity.com about your home dyeing experience, feel free to help me get a conversation started. I'll also put some links to where you can find Chris on the web and uh, give you a, a look at what her book cover looks like so you can know what you're looking for when you visit your local bookstore. I really do hope you check out the book. It, it's really cool. The cover is beautiful and it just is really inspiring. I've already done some dyeing from the directions, following the directions in this book. I was making guacamole dip, so I had some avocado pits and skins and they were going to go right into the trash because uh, that's not really good, kind of a little toxic for the compost bin. So I uh, just throw those away. So now I'm going to be saving them up. I just dyed some wool yarn. I didn't have enough really for a full, really robust color, but I got kind of a late brown out of it, which was very pretty. You know, I just went from the raw color to the light brown. I really enjoyed that. Uh, obviously, there's some more vibrant colors out there to be found in nature. And uh, Chris does a great job of 
writing a very easy to follow book to get you all started. So I hope you check that out. So head over to craftsanity.com to see the links to Chris and her book and leave a comment if you feel so compelled. Uh, it's good to be back, folks. I hope I still have an audience. I <laughs> never planned to be away this long, but I'm back now. And if you want to hear more about that, feel free to stick around for the after show. If you've had just about enough and need to get on with your day, that's fine too. You decide what you want to do next. But thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'll be back soon with another episode. Craft Sanity, my friends. It works for me. Okay, so I'm back podcasting again. I'm very happy to be doing that. Uh, one of the things I realized when I was on my little podcasting hiatus is that I really like podcasting and really missed it. I mean, I knew I liked podcasting before, but you really know when you're not doing something anymore that you, you're like, geez, I really miss that. And I never really planned to stop podcasting. It kind of got to a point where I was professionally going in a bunch of different directions. I had scaled back my journalism job. Uh, I was a full-time reporter with two babies, essentially, when I started this back in 2006 was when I launched the podcast. And I had a newborn and 18-month-old. And now Abby, my oldest, is 10 and Amelia is 8. And I can't believe it. So much time has gone by so fast. But I uh, had gone part-time uh, in 2009 and then, actually no, I went part-time in about 2007 and then I scaled back and went freelance status at the newspaper where I work in 2009 and kind of, you know, was a little bit worried about, you know, how I was going to maintain, you know, this professional life that I'd started and balance being a good mom and good wife and good everything else I wanted to do. And I have not achieved a balance. Uh, my house is still messier than I want it to be. Uh, I've made some improvements. My dining room I painted, finally, after many, many years of hating the color. Uh, it's now gray with turquoise accents, and I love it, uh, with some IKEA furniture in there. Um, I've become a printmaker since we last talked, uh, which is kind of crazy. I own a Conrad Press from uh, a factory right here in Whitehall, Michigan. Well, I don't live in Whitehall, Michigan, but right here in Michigan, about an hour from my house in suburban Grand Rapids, and uh, gotten into that. Uh, I, The main reason why I had to stop podcasting is I got recruited to teach at the community college. I teach journalism and advise a school newspaper, and um, the job was not all that appealing. I turned it down myself in 2006 when I was uh, kind of casually approached about my interest in this position. The pay is not very high. The time commitment is, is extremely high. And it's, um, it's just, it takes a lot of time and energy. And, you know, anyone who teaches now, uh, if you teach young adults, you know, you're competing against a lot of gadgets and computer laptops and Facebook and texting and um, Snapchat and all this stuff, you know, trickles into your classroom. And I'm definitely not someone who, there's a reason I didn't go into law enforcement. I, I'm not great at policing people. I don't really even have an interest in that. And a classroom management, I mean, that's a big thing. You have to be, 
you know, you have to manage people's behavior in addition to trying to disseminate information. So um, it was definitely challenged, you know, me in ways that I haven't been challenged in the past. And uh, this was kind of a return to teaching for me. I've taught before at both community college and another four-year university in town. And uh, what I found is that this job has been the most wonderful, awful <laughs> job I've ever had. Uh, it's very challenging, uh, very inspiring at times and terrible at other times. So uh, I feel kind of, um, <laughs> depending on the day, uh, it's quite a roller coaster. Um, but I, and I have had to kind of put my own projects to the side and I never intended that. And I didn't think that was going to happen when I took this position. Uh, I'm adjunct, so I've committed to one more year. And uh, it is really hard. You have to kind of do some disassociation techniques to um, walk into a place knowing you're being paid far less than a lot of the other people teaching on the campus. Uh, that is difficult to do a little bit. When I graduated from college, I walked into a full-time job with benefits, you know, right out of college. I worked really hard as a student. You know, I came out with a pretty stacked resume and a lot of internships, and I did not have to work my way up then. You know, I graduated, got this job. I was very fortunate. And uh, so for me, this is kind of like, you know, sometimes I feel kind of like I've professionally gone backwards a little bit. Um, but I don't really dwell on that because honestly, I'm, I'm feeling really grateful that I'm in a position in my life where, you know, I, my husband has a, has a job with benefits. So we have insurance coverage and um, we're able to pay our bills. And what that has allowed me to do is kind of freed me up to, to do things that um, are meaningful and are not really for the money type of jobs. So my adjunct teaching is kind of, I look at it more as kind of a mission. Um, it will burn me out if I'm, if it doesn't turn into a full-time job soon, I probably won't be able to continue at this pace for much longer. I, I committed, like I said, to one more year and uh, we'll see what happens after that. But uh, I've been able to participate in and um, witness some really incredible changes in students uh, when a writer, a young writer, finds his or her voice. It's, it's a very beautiful thing to, uh, to witness. And I'm kind of an enabler. I'm enabling students to achieve their potential. I do not take credit for their success because really they're the ones who have, they have to do the work. Uh, so it's, um, that's where I've been. Uh, my magazine's completely fallen off its publishing schedule and I feel terrible about that. It's actually, uh, the last thought before I go to bed every night or almost every night. And when I wake up in the morning, I think, oh, my magazine. And it's caused quite a bit of anxiety <laughs> on my part because I, I feel like a slacker and it's crazy to feel like a slacker when you are constantly working. So when I'm not teaching or talking to a student on the phone or editing some student work or driving my kids around to soccer practice or ukulele practice or coaching the girls on the run team. I, you know, or making weaving looms. I still have my Etsy shop where I, I sell weaving looms. Uh, I, to feel like a slacker when all that stuff is going on uh, is kind of incredible. And it, it's kind of led me to reflect a great deal on how women, especially, we set ourselves up to you know, we say, you know, we got to be good at all these things and we have to do all these things and maintain all these things. And really a lot of that is totally impossible. You can't excel at, at 50,000 things at once. You know, you have to pick and choose what you're going to excel at 
And um, when I was standing in front of the classroom and I had, you know, 25 to 30 people staring back at me, I kind of felt like, okay, now I have to, I have to put their, them ahead of my own personal goals right now because I felt like I, I owed that to them. So I am uh, really kind of being forced because I want to get my creative groove back and my fitness groove back. Uh, I'm being forced to, um, and kind of challenged, that's a more positive way of putting this, I'm being challenged to figure out, okay, how can I balance my life a little bit better? And I know balance, the, that pursuit of balance uh, is something that I don't think I'll ever achieve um, exactly because I'm reluctant to let things go. I don't like to put something off, take something off my plate. And what happens is sometimes things just fall off the plate because there's no more room on the plate. And that's kind of what happened to my podcast. And that's what happened to my magazine. But I love those things. And um, those things were really, for me, that was my extension of my personality. And I kind of, that fell off the plate. And then my swimming and running fell off the plate. And so now I'm spending time in the pool, lap after lap, thinking about how I can get this back on track. You know, I think now I'm also in that phase of life with motherhood where when I started this podcast before I had a magazine, yeah, it seemed like I would be busier because I had a full-time job and um, actually my children were really small. And so their life existed like wherever we took them and they stayed in this house for the most part. Um, now they've got, they're going out in the world and doing their own things. And I really want to make sure that they're having a great childhood. And, you know, so again, you know, my, what my projects have to kind of wrap around theirs and so forth. And, and that's fine. Cause I've, I mean, motherhood has been such a wonderful adventure. So, um, I have no complaints about that. So while they're swimming at the neighborhood pool this summer, I'll be on deck working on the next issue of Craft Sanity Magazine, which I'm calling the Better Late Than Never edition. And I'm going to print that one. That'll be issue 10. And I have some contributor patterns that have been waiting the wings to be published. And um, I love these patterns. They're fantastic. And I can't wait to share them. I'm also having to kind of um, make it a little more summery because <laughs> I tried to publish this in the fall and the spring. And um and needed an update. So I'm working on that. If you want to get involved with, with being part of that magazine project, get in touch. I'm always looking for contributors and I, I think my format for the magazine is going to change as well. Uh, but I'm going to print issue 10 like usual and, um, get it in the usual places. And, um, I also write my weekly magazine column still for the Grand Rapids Press and MLive.com. So I've been able to faithfully keep doing that all along. So, um, yeah, I'm a writer at my core and I plan to, uh, continue and, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about what the future holds and just the challenge of getting, starting again, because I think in life you go through these cycles and where things kind of, you know, maybe you have to put something on a back burner or it falls off your plate. Like in my case, that's what thing what happens because I never really shift I don't actively shift anything to the back burner. I'm always trying to fit more on the stove. So, um, yeah, so thank you so much for your patience and for coming back and listening to the show. I really appreciate that. I'll fill you in on more of the behind the scenes adventures uh, when I do my next show. I have an after show again. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out my Instagram feed, it's 
Craft Sanity on Instagram, uh, you'll be able to see what I'm up to, what I've been up to. I have also been very diligently posting little images from my life since I joined Instagram, which was going on. I don't know. It's it's way more than a year. I'd, I've lost track, but I'm an addict. I love Instagram. I post daily. So that's a good way to kind of see what I'm up to. So yeah, if you have suggestions about a future show, by all means, get in touch. You can email me, jennifer at craftsanity.com and uh, recommend someone for me to interview or a topic. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to just make this uh, conversational, a quick turnaround and a regular pace. So I'd like to be back on a weekly or bi-weekly schedule. So we'll see how that works. So um, yeah, I can use your, your suggestions and ideas. So you guys have um, a great summer and I will be back definitely before the end of summer. Um, I'm already planning out my next show. So thanks again for your patience and your encouragement. I really appreciate it. I'll be back soon.